0: A long story short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the executive director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Reporter Paul Munnies has been following the growth of marijuana in Oklahoma and the rejection by voters on March 7th of a state question to legalize it for adults 21 and older. Paul, were you surprised at the rejection of state question 820?
1: I was, and I think a lot of people that were kind of observing this didn't know exactly what might happen with the March special election. We're pretty surprised, too, both in magnitude, if you're on the fourth side, by the defeat, and then if you were in opposition, just how much the voters rejected the actual initiative.
0: Now, maybe remind us uh, how this question ended up on a March special election ballot. Yes,
1: yeah, so the petition gatherers were uh, submitted all their signatures last year and had way more than they needed to, to make it on the ballot. Uh, but they ran into some snags with uh, the signature verification process last summer and late last summer. Um, they had outsourced that under a new state law to a third party who hadn't done this before. And they hit some snags and some delays in implementing it uh, in time to make the November general election.
0: How was the turnout?
1: Uh, it was pretty dismal for uh, an election, but this was a March special election. It was the only statewide uh, question on the ballot. There were some local elections going on as well, uh, but it ended up being about 25 percent of the state's two million registered voters uh, turning out for that election.
0: Where was support for the state question strongest?
1: Yeah, when you look at their results, uh, it lost in every single county, all 77 counties in Oklahoma. It narrowly lost in some of the more populous counties like Oklahoma, Tulsa, and Cleveland counties. Uh, But when my colleague Keaton Ross did some precinct analysis, it lost in more than 80% of the state's almost 2,000 precincts. And a lot of those uh, were were votes in rural areas and kind of suburban areas. It did a little better in some of the more um, urban uh, parts of the state.
0: The state question included some criminal justice reforms for marijuana convictions. Uh, What's happening on that front now?
1: Yeah, this was kind of a two-tier state question that included some um, expungements for past low-level marijuana convictions. Um, That all now moves to the legislature, who can make these changes anytime they want to. The appetite there I haven't seen lately, but maybe they're just having a wait and see uh, on the actual state question to see if they would do anything more on uh, the low-level marijuana convictions. There's probably about maybe 50,000 to 80,000 Oklahomans in the state who are not in prison, but who have past marijuana convictions that are on their records that have uh, issues renting houses, getting loans, that kind of thing, getting jobs. And so uh, that's still a big piece of this to address in the future.
0: What are lawmakers saying about Oklahoma's medical marijuana program?
1: Yeah, well, some of the more active lawmakers that are, or have been active on the medical side uh, for marijuana regulation have said this is a repudiation of some of the, the, the kind of loose standards and regulations existing on that uh, medical marijuana market. And there's, you know, more than two dozen dip bills still alive in some form or fashion that would address some of the medical market things, including um, some limits on THC, which is kind of the mind altering substance of marijuana uh, on the medical side as well.
0: Now, marijuana is still uh, illegal at the federal level. Anything new on that at the, uh, in
1: Congress? That's right. Yeah, it, it, it takes uh, a lot to kind of move the, the needle in Congress a lot of times, especially see, we see a lot of deadlock and uh, in, in gridlock in D.C. Uh, there are some issues out there in terms of rescheduling marijuana, which right now under federal law is a Schedule One class and that is the strongest uh, limitations on its use and also on its research practices. So President Biden has called for rescheduling or a study for that. But Congress has not taken that up yet, um, and um, you know that's always kind of a perennial call for getting more research out on the, the marijuana side. Uh, separately from that, on the the banking side, there's a, a banking act that would allow federal charter banks to get into marijuana banking. Uh, it's a little bit limited on that side right now. Uh, that bill's been introduced the last three Congress sessions. Um, it passed last session. They have a brand new Congress right now, obviously. Uh, we haven't seen any movement on that yet, uh, but our delegation was split uh, when they voted for that in 2021. I believe it was, it was, I think, three voted for it and two voted against it in our congressional side.
0: All right. Well, thanks, Paul. You can read uh, Paul's coverage of uh, the development of marijuana law in Oklahoma, as well as all his other coverage of state government on our website, OklahomaWatch.org. It's Sunshine Week uh, across the nation. That's the week that Media especially uh, takes a step back to take a look at government transparency laws all over the country, and especially uh, we do that here in Oklahoma. Uh, I'm with Keaton Ross, who covers democracy at Oklahoma Watch. Keaton, this topic of open government and freedom of information uh, is particularly timely. Uh, Tell us a little more.
2: Yeah, like you mentioned, it's Sunshine Week, so news organizations across the nation are highlighting you know, ongoing efforts in their states to improve open records laws, uh, bring attention to maybe uh, lacking agencies that aren't following the act very well, um, those sorts of things. So it's it's kind of a week-long effort to highlight best practices and also shine a light on some things that could be improved.
0: What is Oklahoma's standard by which uh, public records requests have to be filled?
2: Oklahoma's standard is... Uh, Prompt and reasonable, which of course can vary based on the scope of the request and also uh, the person interpreting it. Um, so that that's kind of kind of the standard uh, we work off here.
0: Now, the vagueness of that standard has caused some frustration among the public and uh, custodial uh, record holders alike, right? That's
2: right. Uh, of course, the public might be frustrated by a, requ- a seemingly simple request that's taking too long, or a request that's uh, very—it's uh, in the law that it's it is public record, but it's denied. Um, so those frustrations can can escalate, and and also you might have uh, certain agencies receiving uh, very complex requests, or uh, they might even be be seen as harassing in, in a handful of cases. Um, and then folks are getting frustrated that those aren't aren't filled immediately so um, certainly some some frustrations on on both sides uh, can build up
0: now, what kind of reform efforts have advanced so far this session uh we've we've
2: seen uh, several a few a few notable ones I, I covered in my latest newsletter. Um, one is Senate Bill 89 by uh, Julia Kurt, a Democrat from Oklahoma City, that that would require agencies to provide written notice within 10 days if a request can't be fi- fulfilled within those 10 business days. Um, another is House Bill 2287 by Representative John Pfeiffer, um, which would create a public access counselor under the attorney general's office to Uh, provide binding as well as non-binding opinions on um, denied records requests.
0: Pfeiffer's bill becomes law. Would the public access counselor be accessible to the general public?
2: Yeah, the motivation behind it is that it would be accessible to uh, the public as well as members of the media that are are making requests, trying to work on stories. So um, twofold in that regard, Um, certainly not just for the media or for certain state employees, um, for everyone, definitely.
0: Have uh, other states created a similar position?
2: Yeah, we've seen states like Texas, Kansas, and Illinois have all adopted a similar um, sort of access counselor to to rule on these denied requests.
0: And uh, what's the effect of that been in those states? So I spoke with Mark
2: Thomas, president of the Oklahoma Press Association, last week, and he told me that in several of these states that have adopted an access counselor, they've seen a reduction in litigation over open records. Um, Of course, it doesn't necessarily rule out that, um, you know, a a case, a certain case will advance to uh, court. But once you get an opinion from the attorney general, um, in all likelihood, uh, that's going to hold up in a court of law and stand. So you kind of have, um, you know, a check on it that prevents you from getting into uh, a costly lawsuit. Um, you know, especially for a person that doesn't have, uh, the time or the resources to, to go to court over an open records request, it could be particularly beneficial.
0: And uh, that kind of ombudsman role, uh, I would think, in addition to avoiding litigation, might also help expedite requests by uh, eliminating some of the conflicts between the requester and the agency.
2: Yeah, that that would that would be correct.
0: And how can listeners track uh, those pieces of legislation that might uh, affect government transparency here in Oklahoma?
2: Sure. If you go to uh, my article, um, my latest article on org. Um, dealing with open records requests, I've hyperlinked those bills within the article. So you can click on those. Um, There's a service that the Oklahoma legislature offers to um, where you can sign up for notifications via email as those bills advance. Um, So that that can definitely be useful.
0: All right. Well, thanks, Keaton. You can read all of Keaton's coverage of democracy in Oklahoma. At our website, oklahomawatch.org, where you can also sign up for Keaton's weekly newsletter, Democracy Watch. Lionel Ramos covers race and equity at Oklahoma Watch. He's been looking into the censure of the state's only openly non-binary legislator by the GOP-led House of Representatives. Lionel, uh, tell us what happened here and why. So
3: Representative Turner, as you said, was officially censored, uh, publicly censored by the uh, House of Representatives via a straight uh, party vote. And that was following some events that happened on February 28th, where uh, the House that day was arguing House Bill 2177, which would ban gender affirming care for minors and eliminate it from any insurance coverage in the state for people of any age. Once that bill passed... Uh, there were some some trans rights activists there that were there to protest that bill, and they got kind of riled up. And um, upon leaving the chamber floor, uh, there was a representative, Bob Ed Culver, who had some water splashed on him, which led to an altercation between two trans rights activists and a state trooper. One of them ended up getting arrested. The other one uh, made their way up to Representative Turner's office, where uh, there is <laughs> there's a few different versions of the story going on, but. Uh, and it's unclear what exactly happened, except that um, Turner has been accused of impeding a law enforcement investigation by harboring a fugitive and lying to officers. So, what does it mean for a legislator to be censured? In its most basic terms, it's a formal reprimand uh, of a legislator for breaking house rules in and decorum. Uh, it doesn't always come with, you know, actual tangible consequences beyond what is basically a public finger wagging. Uh, but and it can. In Turner's case. The public reprimand was accompanied by removing them from all of their committee assignments.
0: So uh, Turner is no longer serving on uh, any committees. Uh, Do they still get to participate in House floor discussions?
3: Yes, that will be the only opportunity, really, that Turner will be able to discuss legislation formally with other lawmakers. They can still, you know, do the behind the scenes, have conversations, tea, coffee with other legislators and kind of get on the same page with things. But as far as that formal discussion uh, that's open to the public, that is their only opportunity.
0: Now, uh, surely this isn't the first time this has happened. Other other legislators have been censured, haven't they? They have, uh,
3: mostly manifesting as, like I said, simple reprimands. Um, the things that people got in trouble for ranged from, you know, harmless to criminal. Uh, just for example, in 2011, an OKC rep named Mike Reynolds was reprimanded for Interrupting a chaplain uh, as they were discussing public health care issues before the the prayer, before um, the conversation on the House floor started. In contrast, in 2015, an OKC senator named Ralph Shorty was censored before they eventually pled guilty to sex trafficking charges and got sentenced to 15 years in prison. So there's quite a bit of variety there.
0: what stands out about Representative Turner's censure? Yeah,
3: so the censure of Turner comes after allegations against them, uh, which were made by Speaker uh, Charles McCall, Republican from Atoka, without any actual investigation taking place. Um, meanwhile, there are two Republican House members, uh, Terry O'Donnell and Ryan Martinez, who have felony indictments who have not been reprimanded since uh, House Speaker Charles McCall has been serving as leadership. And that's important because Speaker McCall or the House Speaker at any given time is responsible for enforcing House rules and decorum.
0: So what's the distinction uh, that Speaker McCall makes uh, when he's comparing what O'Donnell and Martinez uh, are indicted for uh, versus what uh, Mari Turner is uh, accused of? Yeah.
3: So uh, Representative McCall held a press conference last week on Thursday, and I got to ask him that exact question. And basically what he said is that it comes down to. Uh, time and place. Uh, in his words, did the, did the offense happen in the Capitol building or out of the Capitol building? And did the offense happen during session or out of session? Um, when I asked him those questions at the Capitol, he made sure to emphasize that as long as he's been speaker, that Republicans have not had any any kind of favorable outcome in these situations.
0: Now, have any other legislators uh, commented on McCall's logic in uh, censuring? Uh, Turner, but not the two Republicans who are under indictment?
3: Yeah. So during the, the House vote to censor Turner, which was on the floor of the chamber, uh, Representative Regina Goodwin, uh Democrat from Tulsa, the, she kept trying to speak up and was, was cut off. So I caught up with her after the fact, uh, actually a week later, and kind of picked her brain about it a bit. And she immediately brought up, you know, Ryan Martinez and Terry O'Donnell in that situation. And then pointed out the fact that O'Donnell's offense was for a law that he wrote in 2019 that um, allowed his wife to be the head of a tag agency in Katusa, where he's from. And she pointed out that that was, that took place in the Capitol and that, you know, he wrote a law in the Capitol and it passed and it's a conflict of interest. That's the whole deal. Um, so for her Senator or excuse me, Repub- uh, representative McCall's logic didn't really line up.
0: All right. Well, thanks, Lionel. You can read uh, Lionel's coverage of Representative Turner's censure and uh, the other elements that go with that on our website, OklahomaWatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at OklahomaWatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.